This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So debt solution questions, the, the, ones, the questions that get asked all the time, and maybe some that people would like to ask Blair but are a little afraid to. I think this is going to be a great segment. Uh, as, as everybody kind of gets a bit of an insight into what others are thinking, especially if you're sitting on the fence and, and not too sure what next step would be, I think this is going to be great to answer, uh, to assist those people who are maybe not sure about taking that next step and giving you a call. What do you think? Oh, I totally agree, Elaine. And, you know, having a debt problem is one of those things where you often feel like you're the only person on earth that's, you know, um, let yourself get into this situation or is facing the collection calls or has more debt than they're comfortable with. Um, and I think anyone that's listened to our show or if it's your first time just needs to realize, you know, uh, debt's become a fact of life uh, for a lot of folks. Um, you know, oftentimes the reasons why someone got into debt have very little to do with bad financial decisions. They have a lot to do with the circumstances of life of something just happened to them. But even if it's completely out of your control, you can still feel alone, feel like you're the only person going through it. So for today, we're going to talk about a lot of questions we're commonly asked. And, you know, hopefully some of them will resonate for some of our listeners who might be having, you know, a couple of debt questions of their own or have someone in their friends or family or extended network um, who is having some challenges. Now, I know that you don't have them numbered like the number one question, the number 10 question, but this sounds like it's probably the one that get gets asked the most, uh, the best way to handle or settle credit card debts. Yeah, that one, there's very few people that we see that don't have some element of credit card debt in their overall debt picture. You know, there might be the odd person who has just an ICBC accident or just some really bad tax issues, but just about anybody else, credit card debt is pretty well the mainstay of what most people have, uh, and it can be some of the easiest debt to incur. Um, you know, it's quite easy to get approved for credit card, even a first credit card, uh, if you're just coming of age or as a recent immigrant, you know, a lot of banks will want to take a risk of giving you that first credit card. And then once you have that, it's not too tough to get a second, a third or so on and so forth. And the challenge is, you know, it's pretty easy to get approved. But then once you start carrying a balance, the debt can really run away from you. So most credit cards are in the range of 20 to 30% of interest per year, um, which is, you know, just that interest rate on its own, if you did nothing, uh, your debts are going to double every about three years or so. Um, so it can be really something that, you know, you look at your statements one year and things seem, okay, I'm just, you know, making minimums, I'm, I'm going to be able to pay this off. And then a couple of years down the road, you just realize all you're doing is servicing interest. So in right. terms of the best way to settle credit card debts, uh, one way that people aren't too aware of is to do what's called a consumer proposal. And the way a consumer proposal works um, is it consolidates virtually all the types of debt that you have. So, you know, including any income taxes or things like that, but definitely your credit card debt and even any payday loans. Um, and it allows you to make monthly payments to pay off what you're able to afford to pay off. 
So for most people, that might be in the range of, you know, 30, 40% of the debt, something in that ballpark. Uh, but it stops all the interest, so the debt stops running away from you. And then you get a monthly payment you can afford to actually clear the balance back down. Um, and you don't need to file for bankruptcy. So it's a better option, typically, um, than a lot of people will find if they're just trying to make minimum payments on their credit card. The balance doesn't go down because the interest continues to accumulate. Um, but if they're doing a consumer proposal, uh, they get the balance reduced, and then they just have to pay off that reduced amount. Nothing keeps getting added to it each month. So it can be pretty life-changing from the perspective of having some hope and optimism of actually getting out of debt. Now, something that we both know is that what might work for one person doesn't necessarily work for another. So what's first steps there for someone? Well, you know, you want to look at all of your options. And, you know, other than a consumer proposal, uh, there could be an option called debt settlement. If you start to look online, you look at debt settlement. You know, sometimes that can seem attractive. And a debt settlement can sound a lot like a consumer proposal in that, you know, you're paying off a reduced amount on the debt. But the issue with debt settlement, and that's why people, you know, start at looking at your options, but, you know, sometimes they can get discounted pretty quickly, is if you're doing what's called debt settlement, you have to have the money up front to pay off a reduced balance. So you might say, you know, you owe $10,000 on your credit card. Okay, I'll pay you $4,000, but I'll give it to you tomorrow. That's how debt settlement would work. Uh, What happens with my clients quite a bit, they say, well, if I had $4,000 kicking around, I probably wouldn't be phoning you. I'd I'd be fine at this point. Um, So debt settlement is something that can sound attractive, but you really need to have that lump sum of money available um, to actually pay off the debt. And that's a big difference with a consumer proposal where you don't need the lump sum of money up front. Uh, you know, another big difference um, is that under a consumer proposal, you get legal protection. So if somebody is calling you, harassing you, threatening to take you to court, or has even started legal proceedings against you, all that gets ground to a halt when you sit down with a trustee uh, and file a consumer proposal. And, you know, the idea is that what's best for one person might not be best for every person. So it really starts uh, with a conversation with a professional, uh, a licensed insolvency trustee, especially at Sands and Associates. We're not going to judge you. We're not here to make you feel bad about a situation you probably already don't feel great about. We're going to listen to your situation and then we're going to give you some advice on all of the legal options that are available to you. And, you know, if you've got a lump sum of money, okay, we'll talk. Okay, that settlement could be an option. But for the most part, people just find, oh, I didn't even know about a consumer proposal and it can be so powerful to restructure all of their debt. Got it. What about um, owing government or having government debts? How does one handle that? Yeah, that's another main question that we get. Um, And sometimes it comes with a little bit of an implicit assumption that, my gosh, there's nothing you can do when you owe the government money. You know, you hear it a lot. You know, even in in conversations I'm having, people will say, oh, you're you're a licensed insolvency trustee. I guess it must, you know, really be tough that you can't help people with tax debt. I'm like, well, here's a chance to educate. Uh, When you owe the government money, um, there's a few ways that you can restructure the debt. You know, first off, you can try to negotiate directly with the government, but the best that you're typically going to be able to achieve is they'll say, okay, we're going to keep charging you interest, but how about you pay us off in full in six months as opposed to tomorrow? That's usually the best result that you're going to get. Um, And government debt could include things like income taxes, uh, student loans, MSP, or even NBC, ICBC uh, balances. You know, if you were in an accident and then denied coverage, you know, that balance can be so significant. Uh, But the good news is that there are two options that are available that can help you deal with any type of government debt. 
Um, so one is the consumer proposal that we've just talked about. Uh, that can cut down government debts exactly the same way that it cuts down credit cards, lines of credit, um, anything else like that. And what's really powerful also uh, with a consumer proposal is two things. You know, one um, is it's the only method that you can use to actually reduce government debt. Um, so, you know, they're not going to make a deal with you to accept 30 to 50 percent of the balance. But if you do it with a consumer proposal, quite often they will make a deal. And the other aspect, it's also the case if you owe a number of people money and government debt is just one portion of that, all you need to get a consumer proposal approved is 50% by dollar value of the people that you owe money to to say yes. So if you owed the government $10,000, but you owed Visa and MasterCard $11,000, for example, as long as Visa and MasterCard said yes to your proposal, it wouldn't matter if the government wanted more money or didn't want to participate in the proposal. They're automatically bound to be part of that proposal because it's been accepted by the majority of creditors. So it can be a really powerful option uh, to help with government debt. So that's one way to deal with government debt. Um, the other way uh, is to consider filing for a personal bankruptcy. And again, this is a last resort, so you want to exhaust that if a proposal won't work for you. But oftentimes I have people come in, they might have a, had a tax debt for just years and years, they're just not able to pay it off, or there might have been an ICBC accident where literally it's a hundred or $200,000 is their liability that's been assessed. You know, in those cases, based on income, even paying off, you know, 20 or 30% of the balance might not be possible. So when you file for bankruptcy, bankruptcy serves to get you back to zero to owing nobody anything and there are very few debts that can't be included in a bankruptcy you know things like child support spousal support but typical government debts can be included if you file for a personal bankruptcy so if you have that misconception you can go bankrupt on everything else but you can't go bankrupt on the government well let's dispel that right away you absolutely can uh, deal with government debt uh, through a personal bankruptcy proceeding i just want to throw in here too that uh, it's really important for folks to realize or know possibly for the first time that only a licensed insolvency trustee can help you set up and navigate through a personal bankruptcy. That's why it's so important to be one listening to this segment, which is a great one, but also call Sands and Associates if you want that, if you want that assistance, even as a first step, just to talk to somebody about it. And I'll give you the phone number. It's 1-800-661-3030. Or you can visit the website as well at sands-trustee.com. Now, I know, Blair, that we've talked about all kinds of myths and misconceptions around personal bankruptcy. Can you share a couple of questions related or, or the ones that get asked all the time about bankruptcy when you're talking to folks? Yeah, you know, a lot of times people are wondering, well, what happens with my assets if I file for bankruptcy? You know, a lot of people think you file for bankruptcy, that means you're losing everything. The trustee shows up at your house, starts carting off your furniture, uh, you know, puts a red tag on your door to let everybody know that you've been bankrupt. Uh, none of that is true. So for the vast majority of personal bankruptcy filings, really nothing happens to your assets. Um, the reason for that is the philosophy of a bankruptcy is to get you back to the point where you can be a productive member of society, um, you can start a business, you can work and get your wages, um, and it wouldn't serve anybody if you're literally taking everybody's, you know, means of supporting themselves, you know, furniture to sit on, tools of trade uh, to earn income from. So there's provincial legislation, it varies a little bit province to province, uh, but in BC there includes some exemptions, which means if you file for bankruptcy, you're able to keep these assets for things like equity 
trading in a vehicle. So if you have a vehicle, uh, whether there's a loan against it or not, there's a certain value you're allowed to have. It's up to $5,000 in the province of BC. So if you file for bankruptcy and your car is worth less than that, uh, or your equity in that vehicle after you deduct the loan is less than that, nothing happens to your vehicle. You just keep either making the payments or you just hold on to the vehicle. You don't have to sell it. Uh, there's an exemption for equity in your home, which most people don't know. They think that automatically, if you file for bankruptcy, well, you're going to lose your home. Absolutely not true. It's actually been a couple of years now um, since I've been involved in a bankruptcy where we've had to sell somebody's home. And the reason for that is for every person that's on title, so if it's a husband and wife, it's multiplied by two, uh, you're allowed up to $12,000 of equity after we deduct real estate commissions and legal costs of a hypothetical sale. So for most people, they've got a house where the mortgage is almost similar to what the house is worth, or maybe they've taken out some lines of credit against the value of the house. Um, so if you go into bankruptcy, as long as you don't have you know tons and tons of equity, um, you're going to be able to retain that home. And usually if you did have tons and tons of equity, you would have already tried to refinance to pay off the debts. Um, there's an exemption for RRSPs. So if you're putting money to save for retirement, the worst thing you can do is to pull that money out to pay your debts because you're going to get hit with a tax bill and then you're not going to have that money available when you actually need it. And it's something that even if you were sued for debts, uh, it could never be taken from you. So there's a real large number of items, things like your household furniture, your clothing, your medical aids. Uh, we talked about tools of the trades. So the vast majority of cases, people generally don't lose any assets if they go through a bankruptcy but they are able to be discharged from their debt. Such a great uh, uh, resource for people. Check out the website, sands-trustee.com. So we talk a lot about debt and, and circumstances that people find themselves in and, and situations and all of that. But how much debt is too much debt, Blair? I, I, don't, know, I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, and, and that's an answer, Elaine. Um, you know, it's different for everybody, but there's definitely some core aspects, core questions, core attributes uh, that you might be experiencing that can help you you understand, okay, well, maybe I do have too much debt as opposed to something that's really comfortable. So, you know, today we're going to talk about a number of things. Um, but, you know, for some people, too much debt might be 20000 For other people, you know, it might be 100000 For other people, it's $5,000. Even a debt that might not seem that significant, especially compared to $100,000, that can just be crippling depending on a person's, um, you know, income, their age, stage in life, uh, and different factors like that. Now, I know there's lots of good stats out there, and I think it's important to go through a couple of them just because it helps people figure out if they're in that situation or if they're unsure if they're in that situation. Yeah, I think one thing to, to highlight right off the top is if people think, you know, you have to owe a ton of money before you can get debt help, it's really not the case. So the way the law is written in Canada is you have to owe a minimum of $1,000 uh, before you would consider filing either a consumer proposal or a personal bankruptcy. And that's an amount that hasn't changed since the law was written in about the 1930s or so, back when $1,000 is probably equivalent, you know, to ten or $20,000. So it really was out of reach for the average person. Now, do I have anybody filing a bankruptcy for $1,000? No, um, but I do have individuals who file either a consumer proposal or even sometimes a bankruptcy where the debt's in between five to $10,000, but they look at their situation and just realize, I'm not going to be able to pay this off, and if I don't act now, well, next year it's going to be double, and perhaps the year after it's going to be double that, uh, so they really want to stop the bleeding. 
you know, quite often there's a bunch of signs that say when someone has reached a critical stage with their debt. Um, you know, some of the classic ones that we see um, is when there's really nothing left to borrow, meaning with a lot of people with their home equity, they've just borrowed against that again and again, and now there's no more equity they can secure uh, as a means to consolidate or manage their debts. Um, if someone looks at their budget and they see they're carrying debts with payments that are the lion's share of their regular income, so you know they're getting the, the robbing from Peter to pay Paul feeling where they're making minimum payments by pulling from one card to another, uh, and then quite often if they're uncertain about who they owe money to, uh, you know they've either stopped opening the mail or they've maybe stopped filing their taxes so they just don't want to know the bad number at the end of the day. Um, and then the last one is just the one that kind of hits you right in the face is are you getting those collection calls? Are people calling you, threatening you with legal action, sending you the really aggressive letters that can cause your blood pressure to spike right away. So all of those feelings can be indicators um, that you might want to cut this debt problem off now before it just continues to get worse and worse, consume so much more of your, of your time and your energy. This is a really good list that we're going to go over right now, or you're going to go over. Uh, it's really considerations for a personal financial check-in. What's the situations that you need to, that, that sort of force you or suggest to you strongly that you stop and take a look at? Uh, debt trouble indicators that we should all be aware of, I think, is probably one way to uh, approach it, too. Well, absolutely, Elena. And the idea with, you know, regular maintenance on your car, you know, you can skip it, but you're going to pay more later, probably, if you're not getting that oil changed all the time. You might be changing your engine eventually. Um, You know, not seeing your doctor regularly, you might miss out on some of the warning signs where an illness could be stopped more quickly before it becomes more serious. Um, So a couple of really good practices to have. Um, as you're looking towards, you know, your finances, um, one is always make sure that you're going through your paperwork. So don't be shredding your bills and statements uh, before you look at them. Make sure that you're filing things, um, but also that you're not keeping everything. You're keeping the things that are most relevant to you. Um, you know, you don't need 15 years of your credit card statements, but you probably need the last couple of years. So that's just kind of some good financial hygiene. Um, you know, another thing that we really recommend, and a lot of people don't do this, uh, is to actually check your credit. So most people aren't aware that there can be inaccuracies, there can be fraud, there can be errors on your credit report. And quite often it's when you're sitting maybe in the banker's office or the mortgage broker's office and you're ready to get that mortgage, uh, but they pull up your credit report and they say, well, there's all this stuff on here. You say, well, that's not me. Well, okay, but the time to get that corrected is not in the moment. It's going to take time. So we generally recommend, and the credit bureaus will do this for free, is that at least once a year, get your long-form copy of your credit report. You know, go through it. It might seem a little bit daunting to read, but it's really not that bad. All of your accounts are going to be listed there. There's going to be some codes beside them. And if you really want some help to go through it, you can give us a call at Sands & Associates. We could talk you through it relatively quickly. But you're going to know pretty quickly if there's an account on there that's reporting incorrectly. Um, It's also going to give you a little bit, uh, perhaps, of some tough love in saying that if you have been missing payments, well, there they are in black and white. uh, And sometimes it's the smallest payments that we don't pay attention to that have the largest impact. So I've been told by mortgage brokers that the number one reason people don't get approved for mortgages, it's not credit card bills or lines of credit, it's unpaid cell phone bills that they were habitually three or four months late. And just that continued delinquency can can just cause your credit score to plummet. Excellent. And of course, uh, looking at your goals, having goals at least, and, and tracking progress. What about your savings? Yeah, savings are, are so important, and especially with what you know the entire Western world has been dealing with now with the pandemic. The idea of an emergency savings fund, um, you know, 
best practice is to have three to six months of your fixed expenses uh, put away and just to not touch that habit in cash or in something that's very liquid so that if you are in a situation where your income is interrupted, um, you know, you're able to react quickly and cover your minimum expenses. But also to think about the longer term, you know, most people don't have a wonderful company pension plan anymore. Those have all often have gone away. Uh, so you've got to think about your retirement. So are you putting money into your RRSP, uh, to your TFSA? Uh, and then the last idea is, you know, just for you know the fun that you want to have in life, whether it's a vacation or or to buy something that you really want, uh, it's going to be that much better for you if you're able to save the money ahead of time. So if you know every year you're going to go on a vacation, the idea of doing a monthly savings program, and a lot of banks will automate this for you or set up a separate account, so when you do go on that vacation, it's paid for, um, and then you don't need to worry about getting the bill afterwards. It's, it's going to cause you to maybe regret doing what you've done. Excellent. Do you want to mention the rule of 60 math? I think this is a really good uh, tip for people. Yeah, this is a really simple way for people to understand, you know, am I in a situation uh, where perhaps I do need to restructure my debts? And it's pretty simple. What you do is you take your non-mortgage debt, so aside from your mortgage, but it could include your income taxes, your student loans, your lines of credit, and things like that, and divide that by 60. So if it was $30,000 divided by 60, you know, it's $500. Does that number look like a monthly payment you could afford in order to pay off your debt in five years? And if it's the case that, oh, my gosh, no, uh, I couldn't afford to pay that. Well, then what you have to realize is whatever you are paying on your debts, you're actually not getting yourself closer to getting out of debt. Um, if you were in a situation where that number is more than you could afford, a consumer proposal or definitely a personal bankruptcy could be an option for you to explore that would actually reduce that payment and allow you to get out of debt inside of a five-year period. So, you know, sometimes you're on such long-term financing, maybe it's an eight-year consolidation, the monthly payments just look so low and you can handle those minimum payments, but dividing it by 60 should give you a sense. Well, if you really wanted to get out of debt, that's at least what you would need to pay. And that's not even taking into account all the interest charges that are going to be against those accounts. Now, in wrapping up this segment, we've just got about a minute or so left, Blair. Um, What are the options that you give people to help them evaluate what their situation is. Yeah, and that's one of the best parts of being a licensed insolvency trustee is we've got access to options that nobody else does, but we're also going to tell you about options that don't include us. So if someone comes to see us, we're going to listen to the situation, we're going to evaluate everything from a credit counseling program, we're going to talk to you if you wanted to negotiate directly with your creditors, what that might look like. We'll talk to you about if you might be able to consolidate your loan or perhaps get some of your home equity to help. Uh, we're going to talk to you about consolidating without borrowing using a consumer proposal. Uh, we're even going to explain to you about bankruptcy. And then finally, we're going to answer, well, what if you just didn't do anything? What if you didn't pay these debts? What are you really at risk for? So we're going to take you through all of those options. So I can't help but repeat, you know, if any of this makes you question how you're doing, do not hesitate to give Sands and Associates a call. I'm going to give you their 1-800 number. It's 1-800-661-3030 for that first free consultation. Sit down with someone like Blair or Blair himself. Find an office near you if that works better and really ask those questions. Again, the 1-800 number For information on any of the things that we talk about on the show, go to the website. It's a terrific one, sands-trustee.com. Lots of frequently asked questions uh, that may answer some of your concerns. Or you can call 1-800-661-3030 for that free consultation. Financial problems, um, we know, often build up over time. But what about the debt that hits unexpectedly. 
And and you also know from all the clients that you've seen over the years that that's the sometimes the thing that takes them out. Oh, yeah. It's not a, a chronic overspending. It's getting wham, hit with something that they had no way of being able to prepare for. And this segment is about the high-stake debts you didn't see coming. And I think it's a really important segment. I'm so glad we're doing it. Yeah, no, exactly, Elaine. You hit the, the nail on the head there that a lot of people, they're doing just fine, they're getting along just fine, then something happens, right? And the big challenge here is we all should have this big emergency fund built up of, you know, six to nine months of fixed expenses that if something happens, you know, you lose your job, you get sick, maybe you split up, you've got some nest egg to carry you along. The challenge is just about everybody that I see, and even my personal life, most people I know, uh, we're just getting by. You know, exactly. you're, you're perched on the knife's edge, and as long as nothing happens, you're fine, but something that tips you a little bit and suddenly you fall off and things can be, can be very difficult. Yeah, because that's, that's a whole other thing to be able to have that six to nine months put away. Yeah. Yeah, very challenging. All right, so what are some of the ones that we don't see coming that are really big and important that we yeah, have the, to deal with? There's one blinking light in my mind right yeah. now. It's three letters and they're very, very topical letters at almost all points of the year here is Canada Revenue Agency, CRA. Yeah. So CRA debt that you didn't see coming can rock your world in a very significant way. Um, you know, sometimes people just anticipate, well, I know I'm going to owe a little bit of money every April and they, and they plan for that a little bit. Um, but in some cases, you know, maybe your accountant made a mistake and maybe that accountant had made mistakes for several years and tried to deduct things that just weren't allowed. And suddenly CRA has reassessed you. Yes. Um, you know, maybe you took on an extra job last year and you didn't realize that that bumped you into a different tax bracket. You thought you were getting deducted enough, uh, but CRA is going to hit you with a big bill and you don't know what to do with that. And, and it's a bill that has to be paid right now. Yeah. Like they owe you money. <laughs> they can take as long as they want to pay you and there's no interest gets to be charged. Yeah. You owe them money. Interest gets charged. It's hefty. Yep. And it's <laughs> never ending oh, until yeah. it gets paid. Well, and there could be penalties on top of that. Absolutely. You know, there could be just basic penalties. There could even be gross negligence penalties. If this was something, that if your accountant had made the mistake, you're still accountable to it. And depending on how egregious it was, you could owe multiples of the actual tax that was saved there. Yeah. Um, so with CRA, yeah, if you owe them money, if you don't pay it prior to April 30th, immediately there's a 5% hit of yeah. interest and then it's 1% per month. So not as bad as a credit card, um, but definitely still not you know not your prime bank rate at all. It, it still can be a significant charge here. Yeah, and no, and there's no negotiation attached with it. Unless you're seeing a trustee to do a consumer proposal, right. no, you're not going to be able to make a deal with with CRA. Yeah. Um, you know, we sometimes find that, you know, people that have been newly self-employed, they get the big surprise after a couple of years too, um, because, you know, we can argue whether it should be this way or not, but there's no requirements for someone to be self-employed. You can literally open shop tomorrow, hang out a shingle, um, and no one really sits you down and explains to you, well, you might be building up a liability for GST if you're charging GST. You might be building up a liability for income tax, you know, if you're going to generate more than the very bare minimum of income in, in the country here. So, People can go for a period of years, um, you know, just saying, well, I'm not going to do any filings or whatever. I'm just going to focus on my business. And people do. And then I see them in my office when CRA has just decided, well, if you haven't filed your taxes for, say, three to five years, we're just going to look through your bank records and we're going to assume that every dollar that went through your bank account was your gross income. Yeah. We're going to assume oh. you had no business expenses and we're going to give you a tax bill based on that. So. Yeah. That's called an arbitrary assessment. Um, CRA can do it quite often. And the answer to it is file the darn returns and then they'll adjust the numbers. But it's definitely, it's done to get your attention. And if you don't deal with it, CRA will take the next step, which can be seizing assets, seizing wages, you know, really giving you a tough time. 
Wow. And and you're the one that's going to help me uh, deal with that too, right? Like at a, yep. a consumer proposal level uh, to deal with the CRA, that's 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 what you guys do. That's what we do every day of the week. Yeah, yeah. We, we can generally make deals with CRA if someone's legitimately unable to pay the debt in full. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, ICBC debt. Yeah, so ICBC debt, you know, a little less prevalent than than CRA, but, you know, there could be a number of reasons, you know, and as long as it's not a criminal basis, you know, drunk driving, someone got killed or something like that. Um, but, you know, if you were driving, you know, while suspended, or if you were driving as a new driver, you didn't have someone in the car with you, if you weren't in full compliance with L regulations, you know, if there's something that caused you to be slightly out of compliance with ICBC and something happens, um, ICBC still pays out for the accident to whoever the other party is, but then you have to pay ICBC back. So I've seen people in my office, you know, 17, 18 years old, and they've got a $40,000 bill to ICBC because a small accident happened and, you know, they just weren't in full compliance with their L or with their N requirements. Okay, so this isn't a fine being leveled by ICBC. This is your responsibility to them because you didn't yeah. Uh, play by the rules and what you signed up for. Yeah, essentially there's been some breach of the terms of your insurance. And if that happens, ICBC is well within their rights and they will do so, say, well, you are no longer covered and whatever costs were accrued to that type of a of an accident, um, they try to recover that personally from the person. And because it's you know theoretically a government debt, not a MasterCard or Visa or something, there's no statute of limitations. You can't wait this out. Um, eventually ICBC will stop you being able to be licensed, stop you being able to insure a vehicle um, and then potentially take more steps to even start to seize wages or or, garnish, or seize assets as well. It's always surprising uh, when people say, oh my gosh, I went to get a new my new license and uh, I had to pay all my traffic fines or <laughs> yeah. all my traffic tickets. And they're just so shocked that these organizations, these uh, agencies talk to one another. Yeah, there, there is a catch-all there <laughs> at the end of the day. So yeah, it's pay now or pay later. And paying now is always cheaper, especially always, with tickets. Yeah. Always cheaper, always cheaper. Um, what kind of clawbacks Mm-hmm. could I get or could one experience? Yeah. So the clawback refers to, you know, if you're receiving government benefits and, you know, it could be OAS, it could be EI, I see quite a bit, or even sure. disability benefits, um, but you're receiving these benefits based on a certain set of facts. And especially if it's EI, for example, the set of facts is that you are not working. Right. Okay. So if you're receiving EI um, and then you get a job, but you neglect to tell EI that you got a job and for a period of time you receive EI and your employment income, uh, when the government eventually connects the dots, and they will, uh, when they eventually connect the dots, they're going to come to you and say, well, we need to claw back or take back uh, those benefits that were paid to you when you weren't entitled to them. Um, so if that money has already been spent and if you've been, you know, living hand to mouth anyway, and the money's not there to repay, well, then you can have a problem because again, it's a government debt. They've got more power than anybody to collect. And it could be a sizable amount, you know, especially if you started to work early on during EI benefits and, you know, just didn't tell the government. And, you know, not to say that that's a completely dishonest thing to do. Sometimes there's reasons for it. You know, a mother trying to support four children who's able to work a little bit, but needs the EI benefits to make ends meet. I wouldn't say she's done the wrong thing, but there will be some implications there that the government's going to come looking for that money back. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's a really good point. It's often it's not the the young the young guy who's who's collecting EI and then you know working here and working there and and still ripping off the government Th- those aren't the cases we're really talking about it's the mm-hmm. it's the people whose backs are up against the wall and, and they need the money and they need that money and they need the money a uh, little bit of money that they can make as well yeah that's a good point um what else well life event debts are are a big thing so you know um 
this is a case, you know, something happens in your life and there's financial implications. And the biggest one that I see is a relationship breakdown. Sure. So, you know, two big components that can really contribute to a financial problem. Um, you know, one is the idea of shared debt. So if you've incurred a bunch of debt together, you've got to deal with it. Um, if you've been married or cohabitating for more than two years, uh, if one person has incurred a bunch of the debt, they might have to, you know, try to hold the other partner accountable for it. So you know, MasterCard or Visa can't collect from the other partner who doesn't owe the money. But if you've been in a relationship with somebody and that other person has put everything on their credit cards and it's been to the benefit of both of you, the person who's got the debt might realistically have a claim against the other person saying, hey, you've got to keep me whole here. This is this debt was incurred for both of us. Right. So there can be some implications of joint debt. Um, but I think even bigger than that, especially if you're amicable on the splitting of debt, it's just the cost of reestablishing yourself. You know, living as a single person is definitely more expensive. Yes. Um, you know, suddenly you've got to buy new furniture. You've got to get a new apartment, new damage deposit, maybe a vehicle. There's just a lot of extra costs that you hadn't planned on as you were a couple that you will start to have to pay if you're single now. Yeah. And it's very, yeah, all of those things are very expensive depending on where you're living as well. Mm-hmm. Um, falling through the cracks debt. Yes. Yikes. So our last category of stuff, stuff that, you know, maybe you forgot about, um, you know, uh, maybe you didn't take it too serious at the time here, yeah. but um, you know, usually it's the case, well, you put your name down years ago, you never thought it would happen and then suddenly it pops up. Oh, so yeah. the number one of these that I see is co-signed debts. Um, so we've talked a lot on this show. When is it smart to co-sign? Almost never um, yeah. because it can and does come back to bite the individual. And this goes back to, you know, you're wanting to help out. Right? Yeah. You're wanting to help somebody. They're they're doing the right thing. They're They're wanting to get back on track. They need some money to do that. And with your help, they can get the money. But there's there's no upside to it if they yeah. default. No, exactly. And, you know, most people think, okay, if I'm co-signing, maybe it's 50-50, you know, if it's $5,000 loan, okay, I'd be on the hook for 2500 No, it's joint and several liabilities. So if it's a $5,000 loan and you co-signed it, if the bank can't collect a dollar from the principal borrower, they will collect $5,000 from the guarantor. So you are signing to be responsible for the whole thing. Um, you'd have to be careful too. If you signed early on to an open credit line, uh, you know, it was at a certain amount early on, but now it's escalated, you know, does your guarantee have a cap? Maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't. Usually it doesn't. So um, you may have some liabilities out there that you don't know about if you're on the hook for as a guarantor to someone else's account. Yeah, man, that, yeah, scary. Because uh, like I say, I like, go back. You, you're actually wanting to help somebody, give them a hand. Yep. And this seems like a very reasonable, responsible way to do it. Yeah. Especially if you have the ability to co-sign and you have of means that you can do that. Yeah, as long as you do it with eyes wide open and, you know, maybe come in, have a meeting with a trustee and say, I'm thinking of co-signing this debt. What are the implications? And, you know, just walk through it. And if knowing all the facts, you still want to co-sign, that's great. Um, okay. But a number of folks in my office who didn't know all the facts, didn't know the implications and regretted putting their name down. You know, it's not a small number. Yeah, that's good. Uh, good idea. Uh, MSP premiums. Yeah. So this is going the way of the dodo in BC, thank God, eventually. Um, it is too, but right? Yeah. But yeah, I've got clients you know, who hadn't paid MSP for years and then suddenly they start to get their wages garnished or they start to get all these incessant collection calls. So um, MSP is something that you've got to keep up on. Again, the obligation is lower this year, getting eliminated, I believe, starting in 2019 or 2020. Um, so it's not something that in the future you're going to have to worry about. But as of now, no, if you're an adult in BC, there's an obligation to pay MSP. And if you think you're under the, under the radar or whatever, you're not eventually. Eventually, they will send you a bill and require you to pay. They'll try to collect for all those months. And I would think that even when the time comes that we no longer have to pay MSP premiums yep. and you still owe this huge amount of money, yep. you're still going to be- Oh, they're not writing to, that off. They're not writing it no. off. No. So you can't say, oh, well, it's you know it's going to disappear <laughs> anyway. That's yep. something I would think, but it's a dumb idea. Unfortunately. Yeah, they're going to come at, back in. And student loans. 
Yeah, with, with student loans. So um, again, you've just got to be careful that you're you're conscious of it. Um, make sure you've got a plan to pay it down um, and realize the student loans as a government creditor, they can still take a lot of actions against you. So all of this speaks to talk to an expert. We'll run through all the types of debts and we'll, we'll ensure that you, know, you get on the right path. Go see Blair at Sands & Associates. Here's their website, sands-trustee.com. Their phone number, it's a 1-800 number, 1-800-661-3030 for that free consultation and to find an office near you. There's so many aspects of uh, things that affect people when they start looking at their finances and realize, yes, I'm in debt. Yes, I need to take some action. And this is a great segment. It's called Risky Debts Ranked. So it's about getting really good insights on debts to avoid carrying. So let's say you've got A, B, and C, but it's D and E that are really going to uh, really going to impact you. And of course, we all know being debt free is always the goal. But you know, it's a tough. It, we're in tough times right now, and and there's no saying when this is all going to end. So it's really a good segment, uh, Blair, to talk about uh, ways to try to avoid taking on some kinds of debts. Yeah, exactly, Elaine. So, you know, for a lot of people, debt is a fact of life. And at different parts in your life, um, you're going to need to incur some debt, you know, just to achieve some goals, which we're going to talk about for many people anyway, depending on the family support they have. But for most people, uh, they're going to be needing to incur some debt. But it really is the case. Not all debts are created equal. Um, there's some debt that we can classify, maybe it's an overused term, but good debt versus bad debt. Uh, and there's some debt that's just plain ugly that you just really want to avoid uh, under any circumstances circumstances if you can. So we're going to go through a bunch of categories of debt today and, let, and let's talk about the good to begin with. Yeah, the good. What is, what's probably the number one good debt to have? Well, now this can seem a little counterintuitive, but a mortgage typically is good debt. So you hear sometimes people are overextended on their mortgages or they borrowed too much. Uh, but in the lower mainland or in most of BC, uh, it's pretty rare for somebody who's taken on a mortgage in the last, you know, five, 10, even 20 years for that not to have been a good investment. Uh, the idea of good debt is that you've got an asset that underlies the debt. So if you have a mortgage every month when you're making a mortgage payment, you're essentially purchasing more and more of that asset back from the bank, so to speak. So it's not money that you're throwing away. Uh, it's not money that's going on, say, a credit card bill for interest. Uh, it's money where there's actually an underlying benefit, which is the house there that ideally um, you're going to build up some equity over time. And, you know, housing is a basic necessity. You know, most people need somewhere to live. Um, so it can be risky if you take on too much of a mortgage and, you know, you're house rich but cash poor and you eventually can't make the mortgage payments. But as long as you manage the mortgage to the point where it's a reasonable proportion of your income, um, you know, mortgage debt can be good debt uh, because, again, you're investing in something for the future. Uh, you know, another one that's really analogous to this is a student loan. Now, again, you hear a lot of people are overextended on student loans or student loans are too high. But the idea is when you're do getting a student loan, uh, you're investing in your own productive capacity. So your income earning capacity should be that much higher uh, by going, whether it's to university, college, trade school, whatever it might be that making that investment, the underlying asset that should appreciate in value over time, is literally you. 
So the idea of investing in yourself, uh, you know, that should typically be good debt, uh, but you've got to be careful that, you know, you're not incurring such significant student loans over such a long enough period that your income is just never going to catch up. So the program of study that you take will be important. And also finishing that program of study, because, you know, getting three quarters of the way through a program, but not getting the credential at the end, you might never get that income bump, which would allow you to actually service the student loan that you've incurred. So mortgages, student loans all fall under the good category. What are the riskier ones or the potentially riskier ones? Yeah, a couple that we're seeing more and more. Um, first one is long-term vehicle financing. So if you go back 15 or 20 years, it was pretty rare for most people to finance a vehicle over more more than three, four, maybe five years on the outset. Uh, what we're seeing now is most of the time, the shortest terms are around five years. We're seeing even seven or eight-year financing terms. So oftentimes what happens is you make an unaffordable vehicle affordable simply by stretching out the financing terms. And sometimes by dividing the payment where a monthly payment might seem high, uh, you do it on a biweekly basis because it's just a lower number, but, you know, it's just a psychological difference. You know, you're actually still paying a significantly, you know, higher monthly payment perhaps than what you can afford, even if um, you are paying it on a biweekly basis. And the thing with a car, with just about any car that I've ever seen, is it depreciates and it depreciates (laughs) quite rapidly. Um, So quite often people are what's called underwater on their vehicle loans, almost from the day they drive off the lot. And that means they might have bought the car for, say, $25,000. A month later, the car is worth $20,000, but they still owe twenty-five dollars or even, say, $30,000 if you put in all the interest on the loan. So it's a negative equity situation uh, where they're paying off a debt where the asset underlying it is actually worth less and less over time. Uh, when you also add in the cost of maintenance, of ICBC, of insurance, everything like that, you know, long-term vehicle financing, that can be something that's just an anchor that can really draw, uh, you know, drag somebody down with their overall finances. Sometimes I see people with a third of their income going to a vehicle cost each month. And, you know, sometimes that can be eye-opening when you add up all the costs and say, well, you know, is that really that important to you or do you have any other alternatives here? whether it's taking transit or just buying an older car that doesn't have a payment against it. Got it. Now, I know that we talk about credit cards all the time, and they are a pretty risky debt to take on. And is that mainly because of the interest rate that we're talking about here? Yeah, two, two quick points, Elaine. I know we touch on credit cards a lot. You know, one is the interest rate. So, you know, even $6,000 on a credit card can be 40 years of payments at the minimum level, um, just, you know, if you're just making the minimums each month. So that's incredibly long term. You're just making the bank a lot of money then and not yourself. But the other thing is just about every credit card debt that I see, there's nothing to show for it at the end of the day. You know, it's just right. been used to fill a budgetary gap uh, or for something that was fleeting and not enduring. So it's usually debt where you can't point to any ongoing benefit. Uh, but you're still being held accountable for the past. Got it. So I want to mention, too, if this information is sort of ringing that quiet alarm in the back of your head as you're listening to the facts about credit card debt, give Sands & Associates a call. It's 1-800-661-3030 or visit their website, sands-trustee.com. So what do you think the debts, what debts are the most risky for consumers to be carrying these days? Yeah, absolutely. Near the top of that list, Elaine, is payday loans. Um, so payday loans, uh, again, kind of similar to credit cards. They're easy to get. You know, anybody can walk into pick one of those money store lenders uh, and you can walk out if you've got a paycheck with some advance on that. But the amount of fees that you have to pay, it can be north of 500% if you add up all the interest, all the fees over time. And typically it creates a vicious cycle where it's not just one payday loan. You need a second to pay back the first and then you reborrow the first and then there's a third 
I see people sometimes juggling up to 10 different payday loans, different due dates, and it becomes no kind of way to exist. So payday loans, they typically one breeds another, and it's such high-cost financing that, you know, if you're getting it because you think you're going to be late on your rent, a better option is to go to your landlord if it's just the first time, sit down with them, tell them, here's one you can pay. You might be amazed how quickly people will accommodate rather than see you having to go at 500% interest rate to borrow some money. Oh boy, 500%. That's crazy. Um, I can't imagine holding a lot of government debt. Money that you owe the government is a good idea anytime. No, and that's, that's a really uncomfortable situation to be in because a lot of our, a lot of us as Canadians, you know, we want to be compliant, want to file our taxes every year. When you get the assessment back and says you owe some money, um, you can be a little bit frantic about what the government can do. Um, and it's actually, it's a well-placed worry because the government has the ability without much notice to you and without having to go to court to suddenly start to seize your wages up to 30% they can take, um, to seize your assets. If you had, you know, money in the bank or even some real estate, they can go on title. So it's debt that you just can't ignore. And if you think, okay, you're staying under the radar by not filing your taxes, you're absolutely not doing that. The government knows. They've got all the information as well. They're able to estimate your tax liabilities. And if you go long enough, they'll just file your taxes for you and give you a big number that's probably higher than it would have been if you had actually acted to file. Yeah. I want to zoom ahead just a little bit, Blair, because I know we've got um, other t- uh, sort of elements of this discussion, but I can't help think that people must start to feel something when they start looking, taking a breath and looking at the monies that they owe and the debt that they're carrying uh, and how important that process is to start feeling. And, and what are the questions you should be asking yourself? Yeah, absolutely, Elena. And that's the idea is if you're feeling uncomfortable about your debt, that usually means you're at least ready to have a conversation with a professional. And it might be, oh, you're actually doing okay. Your worry is misplaced. But I have very few of those conversations. You know, typically it's, yeah, I'm happy you called. Wish you called a bit sooner. But, you know, key questions for people to ask is, are you feeling worried or anxious about your debt balances? You know, every month is it the case, oh, my gosh, I don't want to open this envelope. And maybe you've even stopped doing that. Um, you know, a second question is, are you ignoring or avoiding looking at your overall financial picture? So does the idea of sitting down and adding everything up, you know, just, just kind of put the, put the fear in you? And the last is, are you experiencing debt stress? You know, do you feel worried? Do you feel anxious? Give uh, Sands & Associates a call, 1-800-661-3030. Get that first free consultation. Find an office near you. Check out their website as well. It's sands-trustee.com. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. (laughs) And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.